0: I'd like to call your attention to the book of Ephesians, and I'd like to call your attention to chapter four, and I'd like to call your attention to verse seventeen and following. You know, I, I'm a kind of guy that I get into a book and I stay in the book. I think I've been in Ephesians uh, longer than a lot of people in our church remember. But I'm enjoying the study of the book of Ephesians, and uh, we go verse by verse. I'm not. The guide that a seminary student should follow as the rule of homiletics. I'm probably not that person because I study a section of scripture, and I go through it, and when time's up, I quit and pick up next week. It's kind of the way it goes with me. But I've really enjoyed the study of this book, and I want if I could summarize this message, some have come and asked me this morning, what are you going to preach on? And I said, probably your sin. <laughs> and my sin too, unfortunately. But the point is that in the, I want, if I could summarize it, I'd probably say we're living in a culture and how do we as Christians react to that? How much of the culture is really a part of our makeup? I want to talk a little bit about, too, the fact that we're not here just to study Jesus Christ factually, know all the details about him, but do you really know the person of Jesus Christ? Is he really personal to you? Or is he just a theological fact or something to really think about? Or is he something that you just give a nod, like giving a nod to God? You walk in Sunday morning, you walk out, and you say, well, we did our thing. What is it? The the division in Ephesians is quite clear. Ephesians 1 to 3 is doctrinal truth. Ephesians 4 to 6 is the believer's walk. When you look at the first chapters of Ephesians, he spells out, the theology spells out the truth about God and all it is. And in order for us to walk right, we've got to know the truth because we really walk what we believe. What you honestly believe about the Word of God and the truth, that is the way you live your life. That is the way you think. That is the way you make your decisions. And I've had people over the years say, you know, what, as a Christian... Um, Do you think I can do this? Think I can drink this? Think I can smoke this? Do you think I can see this movie? Do you think I could go to this event and I can do all these kinds of things? And I say to them, you know, that's a wrong question. The right question is how close to Jesus Christ can I walk? These are not issues then. How close can I really live for him? And when you look at the first chapter, three chapters, you see that God chose us. He predestined us. He sealed us by the Holy Spirit. He saved us by grace. We're trophies in the age to come. We are fellow citizens with the Jews, Jews and Gentiles in one body being in the church, and we as the church are manifest wisdom of God. Who would have ever thought that? Now he turns in chapter 4 and he says, I want you and firm to you and say to you, in this verse, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, in all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another and love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He wants us to walk worthy of this. He wants us to do this. In chapter four, he told us about the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He descended, he ascended, he left gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers to the church, in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they no longer go to and fro in the waves like a person fishing with a little bobber and it bobbles up and down every time a wave comes. And I've been in a ministry long enough to know this, that the fads come and go. Remember Jabez? Remember all these fads that have come and gone and come and gone and are still coming and going? We're not to be tossed about to and fro. So God gave us apostles, prophets, who wrote down the Scriptures, and even though they have ceased, their writings and their message goes on. Now we're under pastors and teachers to equip us. And so he says as a reminder after this in verse 17, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. He's reminding them before he really gets into the nitty gritty of how Christians should walk. And he's not talking about putting on a facade of Christian conduct. He's talking about a life that flows within and out. Our relationship to the Lord flows out of that life and what we know. He says, I say, therefore, and it's in the present tense, which means he's continually talking about this. This is not a subject that he just brings up now and then. This is a constant theme in his ministry. And he also says, and affirm together with the Lord. This again is a present tense. I continually affirming with the Lord. In other words, the word is that he is a being attested by the Lord. The Lord is the one who is confirming the message of Paul. One of my mentors died this past week, Dr. John Whitcomb. And he spoke in his church, I think, about 12 years ago. And Dr. Whitcomb, uh, we were in a class one day and he went on a, on a tirade about the Red Letter Edition Bible. That the Red Letter Edition Bible, which was supposedly the words that Jesus said, these words were actually that whatever Paul said had equal value as what Jesus said in the Gospels. And we happened to be in a discussion in chapter three, where did uh, the Conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus end, and where did the commentary of John begin? Somebody raised their hand and they said, Dr. Whitcomb, if you would have a red letter edition Bible, you would know. <laughs> you would know. The words of Peter are the words of Christ and John and Paul. And so he says, you no longer just walk as the Gentiles walk, which assumes something that they did walk as the Gentiles walk prior to their salvation. Just look up at chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 of the book of Ephesians, and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." Once you were a part of that culture, And you and I are a part of the same culture. We once, if we were unbelievers, we once walked in that same culture. It's never been good. It's always been of the devil. It's always been a fallen culture. However, God in his wisdom and his infinite wisdom chose you and me to be born in this particular time, to carry on the gospel in this particular age, to meet in this particular church, to be edified together, to go out and be lights in the world. God is the one who ordained that. You're not here by accident. You're here by the sovereign, direct will of God this morning. You want to know what the will of God is for you? You're here. That's the will of God. And so he firms together, and this is not a news statement with actually with the Apostle Paul. In Romans 9, 1, he said, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me and the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, charge, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus of his, and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. I picture that as Timothy standing down here or as any servant or minister or servant of God standing before here, Paul standing to the side, here's the father, here's the son, and he says, I'm charging you in front of them. This is serious business. We're not Christians just to fiddle our thumbs and do what we want to do. God has chosen us for a specific ministry. And that ministry means, as he continues to say, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. There's a human responsibility with God's sovereignty. And it starts all the way in the garden. When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, In chapter 2, there was stuff that hadn't even come up and waiting for man to cultivate the garden. He expected him to carry on the work that God gave him in his grace, this beautiful garden, and carry it on. And I say that is true in our salvation. We have to believe. And I would say that's true in our sanctification, our growth in Christ, that we have a human responsibility. It's not just lay back and let God I preach to farmers, we actually have more non-farmers in our church than we actually have farmers. Farms are disappearing at alarming rates. But we say to them, they do not, they plant the seed but they do not make it grow. They do not make a tassel or bloom. They do not do anything to it except when they harvest the seed. But you can't have a farm without a farmer. He has some responsibility, though it is God who grows the plant. It is God who brings it to fruition. And it is God who is telling us, I've saved you, and I've given you the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. As we sang this morning, the chain of sin is broken. I have to lay it aside in the following verses. I have to make a conscious decision. I have to obey the Lord in these matters. And he's telling us now, what about this culture? What about this futility of mind, he calls it, in the futility of mind? That's how they walked. We're a new creature in Christ. Old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you and I are now to lay aside that culture that is pictured as a futility of mind. And in the next couple of verses, you almost have Romans 1, 2, and 3 repeated here, only in a much smaller way. In the futility of your mind. The word futility is a word which was translated in the, from the Old Testament, and the word was found in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Purposeless. Uh, absurdity um, No purpose at all I'm going through the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and it's been An interesting study About fallen man and a Fallen world and how Useless it is How useless it is Without God life is Just flat useless Second Peter two eighteen says for speaking out Arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. The word is also used in Romans 8, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Our creation is subjected to futility. What we see out there in the world is nothing like what God intended it to be. And even though it's cursed, and even though it's subject to futility, it is still plain enough as natural revelation that the stark reality of a God who created it is there. It's just that man has subjected it. Man has refused to believe it. The word mind, the futility of their mind, is their perception, their understanding, and their thinking ability. You see, God created the world and our mind so that we would appreciate his glory and comprehend his revelation. Isn't that great? He did, we can look at it and we can see God in everything. Somebody asked me about, did I watch the Sand Hill Cranes? I've never watched them, I've seen them. I've driven by and stopped once in a while just to see them in the fields. They're only about 25 miles from us. And every year they come back and they do their thing and they move on north. Isn't that marvelous that even when you look at the little house wren, tiny little bird, he knows where to build his nest and he builds his nest, he lays his eggs, he knows he's supposed to feed his young. His young get up, fly wherever they fly in the winter, come back and do the same thing their parents did And nobody tells them a thing. Or the leaf on the trees. Every little leaf is a little factory that takes in the sun, sun, turns it into chlorophyll, takes it down as sugar and stores it in the roots, brings it back up and makes thousands of them. God's design. What is the world? When the world looks at the world, oh, this is millions, billions of years old and we're on a frantic search right now to go to Mars, maybe we can find some water. We're coming back through Wyoming this summer, and we were in the um, uh, northern Wyoming going through the mountains there, Bighorn Mountains. One side of the road said these mountains were formed 300 million years ago. We drove about five miles on the other side of the road. It says these mountains were formed 400 million years ago. So one, there's 100 million years between the two, two sets of mountains there. I asked Faith, I said, does anybody know how long a million years is? Think about it. A million years, how long is that? 28 years ago, I walked into the church and I look around here. This is, there's some things familiar here, your windows. But when I look at the back, it's altogether different. And I get back upstairs, I get lost. <laughs> I haven't even been down in the lower level yet. Some of that we were able to begin, but man, you guys have done a great job. Not only are there empty-minded, the great philosophers of the world were like a flash of light in the dark, but that was all, it was just a flicker. Did any of these philosophers bring people to God? Did any of them, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and them? did any of them bring them to God? No, they are empty headed, futile, Not only that, in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Interesting, the futility of the mind has entered every phase of science and life, the mental state being darkened in their understanding, in their mental intellectualism. They've made great attainments and inventions. You now can get out of your car and it will drive itself into your garage. I had a pickup that would parallel park. I would never trusted it. (laughs) But it would do it, they said. The unbelieving world has a mental capacity to do all this, but it's empty, as verse 17 implies, as to purposeless, purposefulness. The Gentile world in Paul's day was, mental intellectualism was the answer to the problems of evil. Isn't that true today? If we could just get everybody educated, we would have a great and wonderful world. Problem. We're coming to the place in our culture, we don't even know when a baby is born, if it's a boy or girl until it reaches the age of five and we'll decide what it is. Have you ever heard of anything so idiotic? That does not even make sense. I heard a parody years ago, a farmer in the South, and the whole thing was his rooster knows he's still a rooster. And we we're coming to that kind of imbecilic type thinking. The word darkened can be used astronomically like in Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine. it says, immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its life and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken, but it can also be used of a spiritual darkness. Romans 121, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. There is a natural blindness. We understand when you read Romans three, none are seeking after God. Nobody's really interested. But when you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter four. We read of some other kind of blindness as well. Picking it up at uh, verse verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. In other words, not only is there a natural blindness against God just from the fallen nature of man, but there is now also a supernatural blindness, but it's